This is the Bigger Pockets Podcast, show 665. I think a successful investor is someone who is willingly ready to pivot whenever that needs to happen. So I think any anybody who has a strict mindset and is rigid on this is what I'm gonna do and is unwilling to actually look at the data in front of them or look at what the deal is in front of them and pivot what they were hoping for, um, is destined for failure. And I think that somebody who is flexible and uh, treats each deal each deal and each property like a snowflake uh, um, is, is more likely to succeed. What's going on, everyone? This is David Green, your host of the Bigger Pockets Real Estate Podcast here coming at you today from Scottsdale, Arizona, where I am checking out rental property and making fire content along with my partner, Rob Abasolo. Rob, how are you today? Hola, hola. It's Friday. I'm feeling great. I'm excited to hit the weekend, maybe catch a, a flick at the cinema by myself and have a little bit of me time. How about you, sir? Maybe check out Bed Bath Beyond if you have enough time, possibly. <laughs> That's my therapy these days is going to the container store and I'm like, ah, I wish I could organize like this. Speaking of Bed Bath & Beyond, we get into it with today's guest, Jeff Ilulian, talking about how to furnish your short-term rentals. Obviously, short-term rentals are all the rage. I've jumped into that and bought uh, several of them for myself. Robbie here is a specialist in the short-term rental game, and this is one of the hotter asset classes in our space. So you often hear about analyzing the deal, finding the deal, managing the deal, but you don't always hear about furnishing the deal. So in today's episode, we give you some really good advice about where to go to find the best furnishings that you can and tip or and hint it's not at bed bath and beyond rob what were some of your favorite parts of the show you know this one is multifaceted. first it starts off as a rental arbitrage lease arbitrage master class and i was like wow we are really we're hitting the groove here and then all of a sudden we transition into furnishing and all the things you need to know the ins and outs horror stories methods to the madness and everything in between and really jeff really does break this one down it's a really, really cool story. He was a full-time lawyer that basically six months into his short-term rental journey decided, hey, I don't want to do that anymore. I want to be a successful short-term rental entrepreneur. And then even from there, crushing it time and time again. So I'm really excited to get into this one. Yeah. We also talk about how Jeff had to transition from being a lawyer, which is not a skill set that is conducive to being an entrepreneur, into being an entrepreneur that moves at scale. We talk about hiring, about leveraging, about growing, and about overcoming the obstacles between your ears sometimes that stop us from making content. So overall, I would say this is a very solid show. Make sure you listen all the way to the end because we play a game called Method or Madness where Jeff gets into the method that he has used to furnish rental properties before and if it drove him mad or if it worked. All right. Today's quick tip is three words, contractor grade furniture. In the show, we talk a lot about buying the right property, as Rob here would say, buy nice, not thrice. You want to get something that will stand the beating that your guests are going to put on it and save yourself a lot of time and money in the future. If you watch this episode alone, that should give you quite a bit of value. I know I had my eyes open to this fact. It's probably going to save me a lot of money on the properties I've bought. Rob, anything you want to say before we bring in Jeff? I totally agree. Buy nice, not thrice. And here's the, here's the let me just give you a little reason why. Because you're going to buy cheap furniture, and then guess what? It's going to break, and then you're going to buy it again. It's going to break again. Not only do you have to get rid of the furniture, you have to hire someone to take it out and reassemble the new one. And then by the end of it, you buy the nice one, and you just, you just ended up spending three times as much as if you would have just splurged the first time. So listen to the episode 
take notes, grab your pen, paper, and get ready because this is this is a good one. It's going to be very, very eye-opening for everyone that's looking to really get into this industry full force. Did you know that short and medium-term rentals offer double the cash flow compared to long-term rentals? It's true, and rent to retirement just made investing in them easier than ever. Now, you can buy fully turnkey short-term and medium-term rentals that are newly built or renovated, leased, and managed. Maximize your cash flow, appreciation, and equity while rent to retirement takes care of all the rest for you. Plus, their creative financing options, like interest rate buy-downs, can get you a rate in the low fives and... Their investor loans let you buy multiple properties with as little as 5% down. Not 20%, 5% down. But why buy with rent to retirement? They're investors just like you and me and rock one of the highest reputations across bigger pockets with more five star reviews than any other company on our site. To learn more, visit renttoretirement.com. That's renttoretirement.com or text REI to 33777. Again, text REI to 33777 to learn more about how you can get started investing with some of the best cash flowing markets today. Passive income without the property headache? It's possible. There's a way to invest passively in real estate and get monthly income without any tenants, maintenance, or property management. The Wealthy have been doing this for years, and if you're an accredited or high net worth investor, you too can collect cash flow without the headaches that come from owning rentals. How? By investing in a private real estate fund with PPR Capital Management. PPR's co-founder, Dave Van Horn, wrote the book on real estate note investing for BP. But he's not just investing in notes. Dave and his team also have an extensive background in commercial real estate. And with PPR Capital Management, they're strategically investing in both notes and commercial real estate nationwide. With over half a billion dollars in assets under management, PPR has provided individuals with a steady source of truly passive income since 2007 without ever missing a payment. Check them out at investwithppr.com. Again, if you're looking to get monthly passive income from an experienced team with a strong track record, go to investwithppr.com today. Buy low, sell high. Buy low, sell high. It's a simple concept, right? But not necessarily an easy concept. Right now, high interest rates have crushed the real estate market. Prices are falling and properties are available at a discount, which means Fundrise believes that now is the time to expand the Fundrise flagship fund's billion-dollar real estate portfolio. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in minutes by visiting fundrise.com pockets. Fundrise.com pockets. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com flagship. This is a paid advertisement. All right, let's bring in Jeff. Jeff Lulian, welcome to the Bigger Pockets Real Estate Podcast. How are you today? Doing great. How about you? I'm doing good too. I'm in Scottsdale, actually. I'm here looking at uh, potential rental properties, going to be checking out houses when we get done with this. And then uh, tomorrow as well, I really like the area. There was a crazy storm here last night. We were doing a YouTube live and it was like everything was fine. Within five minutes, it was like a monsoon, just tons of rain, tons of lightning. We're kind of staying up in the mountains right now, so we were right in the middle of it. It was an awesome experience. And I'm not quite sure how I'm going to connect that to what we're going to talk about today. I was hoping that as I kept talking, there would be a segue that would appear. There's Oh, I got it. Okay. I got Rob. the segue. Don't worry. Okay. So I think that monsoon was the guest that we just actually had at our Scottsdale property. And let me tell you, man, this is by far, I mean, this is the... Oh, 
most, uh, oh man, high maintenance guests I've ever had in my entire Airbnb career. And here's the segue. Get ready for it. Jeff, tell us about your short-term experience because I know you've, I know you've managed quite a few short-term rentals and you've probably dealt with a few high maintenance guests in your time. Yeah. Uh, I think that's a very, very fair uh, thing to say. So I've uh, managed over 250 vacation rental units uh, in a variety of different ways from um, super, super luxury uh, homes all the way to apartment buildings uh, and everything in between uh, cabins, uh, you know, beach properties. And uh, the, the level of maintenance uh, is always is always high. Doesn't matter the type of property. It can, it can always get pretty high. So I've, I've probably had tens and tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of guests um, with a lot of crazy vacation rental stories. Wow, that is uh, okay. That that's some bragging rights, man. To to even be in the tens of thousands. I mean, I, I'm thousands, and uh, I was just on the phone with Airbnb talking about this guest. Like, you know, it was a whole it was a whole thing, many layers deep into the customer service realm. And I said, listen, I've hosted thousands of people. Okay, so I don't say this lightly, but I think this is the one. And they they laughed and like, we understand. We can't help you though. And I was like, no. <laughs> So uh, tell, us, tell us about when you got into Airbnb, man. Yeah, so I got into Airbnb back around, uh, or vacation rentals, the STR industry, um, 2014 uh, kind of started. Uh, I was, uh, and am a lawyer, but I was practicing law at the time um, and really read an article for the first time about somebody doing uh, arbitrage, thought it was really interesting, uh, had never thought about it before, and uh, always loved the idea of being in the hospitality industry, of being in travel, um, and kind of started back then with my first property. So that was kind of the, I mean, I, I consider that sort of the the Wild West of Airbnb, the, the 1.0. Uh, and then I think the next probably four or five years were sort of the 2.0, where things are getting more established. And now we're sort of I don't want to say the final stage, but it's a very different animal. I mean, would you say that there has been pretty pretty big paradigm shifts within the short-term rental uh, industry since that time? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think uh I think even thinking about 2014 as as 1.0 is kind of is is a, is too too much. I mean, 2014 was already 3.0, 4.0. I mean, the last 20 years of the vacation rental industry has, has changed a lot. Um, you know, I go to, I go to conferences and, and things and meet, meet people who, uh, were in vacation rental markets where it, it's customary to not make the beds, right? You just leave, you leave the sheets, um, you know, and hang them on the door. Guests used to have to 20 years ago, they used to have to pay if they wanted sheets. Um, so that even in the early 2000s to 2014 was a huge shift. Um, I think we're definitely in a third phase from from that point, uh, but you know, right now is is still very much the wild west. That's totally fair. That's very 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 fair. I, I kind of more liken it to the, I guess like the the dot com era for like Airbnb and short uh, short term rental VRB Verbo all that stuff. So yeah, okay. So you got into you got into real estate. Uh, you saw this article, this 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 interesting uh, concept of letting strangers sleep sleep in your home for a rate, basically, right? So, what from there sort of kicked you off to actually get into it, and and what was that first unit like? So the the first first unit that I had, um, I actually got that unit. Uh, I was speaking with a friend who had some experience in the in the short term rental industry. He'd been doing it for a little bit longer than me, uh, based out of New York, and we had this uh, this this property that came up. And we actually started that property under a management deal uh, where a third party company was managing it um, from New York for about 
three, four months. Um, and it was a really interesting deal for a bunch of different reasons. Uh, but I, I learned a lot for those, from those first three months about how management worked, um, seeing somebody else manage my own property. Um, but that deal was really, really unique because I actually, it was a lease arbitrage deal that I had a property management company running. Okay. So can you explain that for, for people at home, just so that we understand what is lease arbitrage? Yeah. So lease arbitrage is essentially, uh, you go in, uh, you lease a property for X amount, uh, banking on the fact that if you put furniture in it and rent it on a short, uh, shorter basis, then, you know, a year or multi years that you're going to get overall higher return, uh, you know, nightly rates adding up monthly, you're going to get a higher month return than you would get uh, after expenses with just your uh, lease. So it's the arbitrage, the difference between your fixed lease amount that you're paying and what you're getting through short term rent, the short term rental industry. At least that's what lease arbitrage is in this industry. Yeah, sure. So basically, let's say that it costs you $100 a day in rent to, to rent a property. And then let's say you got another $20 in utilities a day. You have to rent your property for more than $120 a day to make a profit, basically, right? That's right. Yeah. And plus, you know, factoring in the fact that you're going to have to furnish the place, um, you know, maybe pay a management fee for, to somebody else, all of those costs add up. And the idea is that you're going to, at the end of the month, you're going to net out more money than you're paying in, in rent and expenses. So as someone that actually started in rental arbitrage myself, um, I this was me back in 2018, 2017, somewhere in there. That's when I, I was just a, a wee raw built at that point. But I was getting my, uh, I don't know, I was understanding what this could be. And I thought it was a, a, just a crazy opportunity to make a lot of cash flow. What was this like in 2014? Because in 2018, I mean, it wasn't even a new concept at that point. 2014, this must have been like, man, I feel like I'm, I'm really, I've won the lottery. So tell us about like the the sentiment there when you were first getting started. You know what's really funny, Rob, is that the sentiment in 2014 from everybody else who'd been doing it for four years is four years ago. You know, this was five years ago. This was a completely novel concept that nobody would have ever thought, and and like. The, the, it's the same as what you're saying now. I felt the same. I, I was like, this is already played out. This is already done. Um, but now looking back at it, it was very different than it is now. It was, for lack of a better uh, way to say it, it was, it was very hard to miss. There was a lot of money out there. You could put any kind of units up um, with you know any type of quality, level, et cetera. And they were going to rent and you were going to get... Uh, you were going to meet your your lease arbitrage number. It was it was very very difficult to miss. The demand significantly outpaced the supply in the market. Okay, so can you tell us what, what were you actually doing? Like, what was your full time career at this time? Were you already in real estate? So I was. Um, I've always kind of dabbled in real estate on the side. Um, you know, a little bit of like commercial real estate, a little bit of, of residential real estate. Um, but I was a lawyer full time. So that's what I was doing. I, I did some real estate law. I was doing transaction work. I was doing um, business litigation. So I was working at a big law firm and my day to day at the point when I started getting into the vacation rental industry was, uh, you know, woke up super early, went into the office, worked a full day as a lawyer, and then was trying to figure out how to do vacation rentals at night. And at the beginning, uh, you know, I had a property management company handling my messages, but during that transition where I decided to make the jump full time, um, you know, and quit, I was doing a lot of the messaging from my phone, you know, in the office, responding to guests, you know, doing pricing, all that stuff, you know, on, on coffee breaks, on things like that. So, um, you know, I was working full time as a lawyer when I started doing this. I always wonder how people do this. I was in advertising. So I always felt like my life was 
really flexible. My career was very flexible. And it's always crazy that like a lawyer could be managing an Airbnb on the side. And David, I don't know, what was it like for you, man? Because I know you were out in the field, you were working um, in the force at that time, managing your, your portfolio. Were you ever just shooting text messages out, out in like to your property managers or was it pretty passive for you early on? No, it was not passive at all. So I, very similar to Jeff, had to develop a system where I could communicate with people on the breaks that I had. So part of it was training the property managers, the agents I was working with to communicate with me in the way I needed. So text messaging was much easier than phone calls. And I would prep them ahead of time. So let's say that they had a house they wanted me to look at. They don't just send me a link and say, do you want to buy it? It would be, here's the house, here's the rent, uh, here's the ARV, here's where I think we can get it for. And uh, I've looped the property manager in on that text. And the property manager would literally send a thumbs up icon or a thumbs down icon regarding, do I like the area or do they like the area? So I could really quickly look at it. And then I could take those numbers and either at a point I got to be able to do it in my head, but at first I would just run in a calculator and I could make a decision on yes or no. And then uh, I could just text back with a purchase price, like 110K or 200K or whatever that they would write the offer. And then they would tell me I've sent the email and I could docu-sign it. So as a cop, it could literally be, I go on a call, I get done, I get back in the car, I look at my phone, everything is there I need. I send the text, I put it back in my pocket, I move on to the next thing. All of us have time throughout our day. It does not matter how busy you are, where we check our phone to text our friends or we check an email or we look at something on TikTok. I don't use TikTok, but I know a lot of people do. Most visited website. Not yet. So if you tell yourself, I can't do this, I'm too busy, that will become true. If you ask yourself, how can I do this when I'm busy, you will absolutely find a way. And I personally believe that led to me being better at analyzing deals. It led me to be a better communicator. It led to all the concepts that are in long distance real estate investing. So I love hearing that Jeff had that same attitude. It's just, I don't, this sounds cheesy to say it, but so much of the time we talk ourselves out of what we're possible of because of the stories we tell ourselves. You see this with real estate agents. They go to the office, they sit there all day. They don't contact any buyers or sellers. They don't put anything out to draw leads. They don't do any work to make them money. They sit there, they develop business cards, they make marketing flyers and they look at emails and then they go home and say, I worked for eight hours today. No, you sat in an office for eight hours. You didn't actually do work. But when you have that W2 mindset where you get paid just because you're at a place, you start to think that's work. And that W2 mindset does not work in this 1099 world where we are entrepreneurs, where we have to, we get paid for results. And I, and I truly believe Jeff, and I want to hear your opinion on this. So many people don't work in an, any form of an entrepreneurial environment because they can't break out of that thinking of like an assembly line worker. Like I'm here. It's supposed to just happen. I'm looking at houses on Zillow. Why have I not got a deal under contract yet? But if one of us sat there and watched him do it, we'd say, say, yeah, you showed up at the gym and you didn't touch a machine the whole time. Yeah. I mean, I, I can't, tell you how much that resonates with me. I mean, the, the concept of, you know, being, being, being productive with your time and like what you can do when you're really thinking about your time, you know, as a lawyer specifically, I was tracking every minute I was billing by the minute. So I was very conscious of what I was doing with my time. So if I was sitting there for eight hours and I wasn't tracking what I was doing and billing it to somebody, then I wasn't going to get paid. You know, I wasn't going to get my credit for it. So I was very aware, hyper aware of, of time, but you, you figure out, where you can fit it in, where you can find time. And, and honestly, you make, you make the time. Um, a lot of the work I did in the first six months before I decided to jump was done from 6 p.m. to 10 p.m. You know, that, that's a lot of hours. Uh, 
You know, you, you can do a lot of work l- late at night. And I think l- just like you're saying, David, the, the, the toughest part is that first, you know, you're sitting there, you're paralyzed, you're a deer in the headlights. Taking that first leap of faith is really, really challenging. Um, and I wasn't, you know, as good as I was at managing my time and being productive, that was a really big learning curve for me. I was not, it did not, it wasn't a natural fit right out of the gate. I was really risk averse. Lawyers are trained to be really risk averse and think the worst is going to happen in everything. Lawyers in general make terrible business people mm-hmm. um, for that reason alone. You're, you're terrible at sales. You're really bad at, you know, uh, at deal analysis because you think everything is a, is going to fail. So I, I totally get that. And that first little nudge over, over the edge to kind of, to jump off the cliff as it were, like that's, it's a big, it's a big thing. I see this with different, uh, vocations like engineers. So sometimes, uh, my real estate team will be working with an engineer and, and we'll find eight houses. We're going to show them as a potential house hack. We'll go look at the houses and they don't like any of them. Bad area, bad house, something. So it's obvious. No. And they're going to want to follow up when we get done and analyze every house and plug all the numbers in the spreadsheet and see what the ROI would be and talk about like how they would do every house. And I'm like, bro, you don't want any of them. Why, why are we still talking about this? Let's put the energy into finding the next house. And it's, it's sort of a self-awareness thing that you have to recognize. I am programmed to think this way. As an engineer, you just have to solve problems. You have to dive in and get the information. And it's easy to forget, why am I even getting this? What purpose does it serve? And when you get into uh, the world of real estate investing or entrepreneurial en- endeavors in general, you're always asking yourself, does this matter? Is this important? How important is this? Is this going to actually move the ball forward? And I just wanted to take like a little segue to cover this because so many of our listeners, I'm sure, are trapped in the matrix. They don't realize they're just going through these motions without knowing they're going through motions. And two years can pass. You haven't made any progress. It can become very discouraging. So if you don't mind sharing what was your like red pill moment in the matrix where your eyes were open and you realized, yeah, as a lawyer, I am totally prone to seeing what could go wrong and I can't see anything other than that. And now obviously you're in a place where you've sort of embraced risk and you're creative and you're scrappy. That could not have been a natural process for you to go from where you were to where you are now. It, it wasn't. And you know, to be fair, I had a really great business partner um, when I jumped out of, of being a lawyer. I, I, I didn't start it on my own. I had somebody who was an entrepreneur who had some experience really kind of coaching me through those first couple months. Um, and it was really, really hard. You know, I was used to being, you know, right about, you know, you're trained as a lawyer, like to value your opinion, your opinion is right. You've got to go with your gut and be, and then you enter into a totally different universe where you don't even, you don't know which way is up. Uh, and you're on a sales call and then you have somebody tell you afterwards that that was the worst sales call I've ever heard in their life. Um, that's a tough, that's a tough thing. So, um, I had somebody kind of, uh, coaching me through those first couple months. Uh, and I think that that was my first sales call, uh, was probably that, that red pill moment where I was like, Oh, I don't know. I don't know anything. Everything that I just heard as a critique of my first sales call was one of the worst, you know, I look at it now and I, 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 you know, I, I laugh in a great way, but it was, it was a good learning experience. So that was your first uh, deal, right? When you were first starting out, but how many deals did you eventually get to just so that I have an understanding of, of like how far you went with this? So, yeah, um, I started with that first deal and then I did about the next 40 deals as lease arbitrage. Um, and then after that, it kind of became a mix about 50, 50, I was doing property management for other people. And then I was doing lease arbitrage. Uh, when we were at our biggest, we were 150 properties. 
Um, but you know, over the seven, eight years, you know, probably a lot of those came and went. So I set up and ran over 250, but you know, sometimes, especially with these arbitrage deals, they'll last for two, three years, especially the way that I was doing it. They won't last, some of them didn't last forever, but that was kind of the point. Wow. Okay. So <laughs> we got to backtrack here. There, there's a lot, lot to this story that I want to know. So you went from one and you said, we did about 40. So what was that like? What was that scaling? Because in my understanding of lease arbitrage is it's pretty tough to go out and find landlords that are like, sure, you know, you could lease my place. Why not? I, I, sure, I could get the same rent from a long-term renter, but your pitch sounds great. So how are you able to actually get into units? Because that seems like the, the hard part for this niche within short-term rentals. Yeah, I think that I think that that's right. And I have that conversation with a lot of people about, you know, what's the best way to have the conversation, how to approach a landlord, you know, for me, I found a niche within a niche for those first, you know, 40 properties and, and kind of ongoing, which was I had this wild idea. Um, I knew a bunch of real estate developers and they were really focused on flipping homes, uh, but they were flipping homes in nicer areas. So they would buy a home that was decent, uh, but the market in that area had shifted and the market was really hot. And so for them to knock down a decent home and build a much, much larger home was going to be worth it in, you know, two, three year flips. And the problem was that when they would buy these homes, they would have to wait for entitlements and wait for permits to come through. And that process, especially out here in Los Angeles, could be anywhere from a year to 18 months to two years, depending on what you're trying to do and how crazy it is. And so the concept that I, that I came up with was to, you know, just talking to some of my real estate friends was hearing that they'd bought a home from a homeowner, that homeowner had moved out, and, you know, cause they were moving on, uh, and they were trying to figure out what to do with these homes. Um, they wanted to lease them out, but they didn't want to put long-term tenants that they were going to have to maybe kick out in 10 months. And they didn't want to, um, you know, go through the hassle of, uh, you know, figuring out what to do with it. And so I reached out to people who were neat people who landlords who needed this service specifically, they needed somebody to come in and take an underutilized asset and figure out how to maximize it or how to make it work for them. So I was leasing properties that were um, waiting for entitlements, homes that were waiting for entitlements uh, for flexible periods of time, anywhere from 10 months to you know two years saying, you let me know month to month when you're ready to get the property back. And I was able to lease those properties at significantly less than market rent. Wow. So basically someone was going to go and just so I understand, and let me just say, as someone who has built a tiny house ADU, an accessory dwelling unit in my backyard, I can 100% vouch for how difficult it is just to get a, like a simple permit or what I thought would be simple. I was very green. I didn't know what I was doing, but it took a long time just to get a 300 square foot structure. Uh, yeah. So I permanent. So I, I have a lot of sympathy for, for the people that actually want to do a teardown and a remodel. So effectively, someone sells their house and they're either just going to lose money on the mortgage payment. They don't want to have to evict anybody. So you come in and you're like, hey, tell you what, I'll, I'll, I'll lease it here. And when you're ready to kick me out, I'll go. And you were able to just pick up clients that way? Or did you have a lot of no's along the way too? You know, mostly it was yeses. Um, honestly, I, I, it was the value prop we were bringing to the table was really strong. A lot of the people's alternatives were, were zero. They were just not going to rent the homes out. Or we were also coming by understanding their pain points. We were coming in with conversations like, well, you're a, fl you're a flipper, but you don't do management, right? Like they don't have management. A lot of these companies weren't property managers. So we would tell them, hey, look, we're going to lease the home. We're going to lease it for less than market rent. We're going to give it back to you whenever. And if anything happens to the house, we'll fix it. If, we'll never call you for any basic stuff. 
you know, if, if it's a minor AC repair or a broken faucet or a, you know, plumbing issue, as long as it's not a major thing, we'll just take care of it ourselves and we won't even call you. And so that was like music to a real estate developer's ears that was doing a flip. They didn't, they, that's the last thing they want to deal with. This is all upside for them. So a lot of these deals were really easy to close. Okay. So were you, was this all specifically in any kind of, I don't know, segment within Airbnb, like luxury? Because I know, obviously, if you're building a house, it takes a little bit of money to do that. So I imagine were, were these all these houses in more higher end areas or was it kind of across the board, just every single type of, uh, I don't know, price point? It was across the board. I mean, I had homes. I mean, I, you know, I eventually got to homes where I was renting them out for three, $4,000 a night. And I had homes that I was renting for $70, $80 a night. And this lease arbitrage model worked for both because what would happen is it would be a okay home in a decent neighborhood um, that was going to be turned into a super nice home. So it might've been a little bit old. It might've needed a little bit of touch-up work. And I would do light light work myself, you know, painting, uh, you know, maybe putting down some laminate in, in an area that needed a little bit of love, but nothing heavy. And then on the other hand, we would get folks that would call us, hey, we just bought these four homes um, and we're waiting to get uh, entitlements to build an apartment building in this part of town. Um, do you want these four homes? Cause they're just going to sit. We're not going to lease them to anybody um, until we get a, and the entitlement process to get an apartment complex, you know, greenlit is years. So those were always great deals for us too. But a lot of those or even some of the apartment buildings um, were, were much, much smaller, much, much uh, more value units. Wow. Okay. So tell me a little bit about your team here, because I know, uh, there's only one Jeff, right? So there's no way that you can go and furnish and paint and lay laminate on all 40 units, I'd imagine. I mean, at this point, once you get to that number, you've probably left your job, I think you mentioned six months or so. Is that was that right? Yeah, probably like five, six months after I started renting out the first property um, with that management company. Yeah, I, 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 had, I, I remember having 10 properties when I left my Okay. And so at what point did you start building out your team or what did that team look like? Tell us the phases of it, because I know from one to 10 is going to be probably a different animal from 10 to 40. Yeah, absolutely. So I think, you know, you have to also remember in the context of this story, uh, PMS software was not property management software in the vacation rental industry was not where it is today. A lot of the solutions um, that exist, like, like host GPO, my company now, like didn't exist back then. Um, so things that make it easier to run vacation rentals. And so the types of help that you need were very different. So the first person that I, it was me and my partner, the first hire that we did remember 2014, um, was a, was a check-in person. We did all of our check-ins in person for the first two years of this business. <laughs> wow. Um, and it was because we were hyper vigilant about what was going on. Uh, back then there was a lot more fraud. We were in a really, you know, kind of metropolitan area. And so there were a lot of like party issues, neighbor issues, things like that. And we wanted to make sure that we could get it off the ground. Right. And we wanted to make sure that we were creating great experiences for guests. And kind of that was the remote check-in thing was just getting started. So the expectation was a little bit different when people showed up, being able to have somebody walk you through the house and answer questions for you. Like that was really what generated a lot of positive reviews. Now we stopped doing that for a lot of reasons. Also, I think it became unnecessary and we learned how to do that in other ways. But so the first person was a check-in person. Um, the second person was a maintenance person. Um, after that, we had uh, an operations person that did all started doing a lot of the messaging. Uh, we hired a pricing person that was doing the full-time pricing. Uh, oh, I should say before we hired the, the pricing person, uh, we hired a 
something that we thought was really important was a, a head of, a head of uh, quality and assurance. So this person ran our cleaning teams. So the cleaning teams were all outside cleaners, but we had somebody present at the beginnings and ends of the cleanings to run inspections to make sure that the properties were like in tip top shape. Um, so ahead of cleaning, uh, and then after that, you know, your basic accounting, another operations person, two full-time handymen, um, that were kind of doing everything. We did a lot of maintenance work and we kept the units in great shape. We would repaint units. I don't know, twice a year, like pretty much any, any issues, any, any maintenance issues, just to make sure that they were always had this like fresh, you know, unwrapped brand new kind of feel when you walked in. Okay. So you you kind of figured out the the team, right? You're you're kind of slowly assembling here. I'm sure you have a lot of problems from that zero to forty, right? And I have to imagine going from forty to 150, that's gotta be a whole different animal with its own set of problems, right? Absolutely. I mean, I think that you start to get to the point. Um one of the other issues was you know, one of the big, big problems that came from 40 to 150 was we started diversifying our business model. So now all of a sudden we were doing property management on some properties, lease arbitrage on other properties and keeping track of like expensing, accounting, doing statements for owners, figuring out who's paying for what, um, figuring out how to track and what types of maintenance we wanted to do on different properties when we needed to get approval. Uh, the diversification of the business into the luxury space, how we handled luxury units was so, so, so different than how we handled basic units. So um, we really creating operating procedures that went across a broad cross of different types of business models and different types of properties was probably the biggest logistical hurdle from 40 to 150, just figuring out how to treat each of these properties and creating processes for each one. Um, it was it was really complicated. Do you feel like at any point, you you went from being a, a real estate company or like a, a rental arbitrage, lease arbitrage company to an operations company, or are they kind of one and the same in, in this in this business? You know, I think that they're they're different. Um, there's a lot of people doing lease arbitrage out there, or just investing in the short term rental industry uh, passively, uh, where you, you're not really involved at all. There's a lot of people that take managing and working with their their property managers really, really seriously and are really hands-on. And then there's people that are owner operators that do, you know, 50, 100 units on their own. And I, I really think that the degree that you can work with other property managers or, or or do it on your own, it's just a total sliding scale and it just depends on what you're on what you're looking for. I think you can shape it however you want. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. It's, it seems like part of the growing pains of growing a company. I mean, it, the, I, I know you and I know you have a great team. I remember we we were having dinner not too long ago and you're like, oh, I've got a person for this. I got a person for this. And I was like, wow, this guy knows how to build a team. I have something to learn here. Um, and that, that's obviously one of the big proponents of, of operation. That's one thing that I'm figuring out right now. Remember when you had to pay to get a Leeds phone number? It was like the dark ages. Until Deal Machine made skip tracing a thing of the past. Now, with your Deal Machine plan, you'll get unlimited access to phone numbers and contact information for no extra cost. That's right. Get high-quality, reliable information trusted by leading financial institutions, all fully compliant with the federal do-not-call list. Explore over 150 data points, including age, gender, marital status, occupation, and a ton more. Trust me, 
This is the data you need for off-market deals. With new filters, people flags, and color-coded phone numbers, lead management just got a ton easier. Ready to step up your investing game? Sign up for a Deal Machine plan today and gain immediate access to this unlimited treasure trove of contact information and phone numbers. Just head to dealmachine.com BP. Transform your lead generation and deal-making strategies with Deal Machine. Sign up today and start exploring the unlimited possibilities at dealmachine.com BP. Finding rental property insurance has been a headache for the past few years. You know the feeling. You're scrambling, calling 20 different insurance agencies in a dozen different cities, struggling to protect your portfolio at the right cost. But I'm going to tell you a little secret that'll change everything. Veteran investors don't go through the everyday insurance companies. They just use NREG. NREG, that's N-R-E-I-G, provides insurance solely for real estate investors. They've built the largest insurance program in the country for residential tenant-occupied, vacant, and renovation properties. The best part? You can put all your properties on one insurance schedule and one monthly bill. And you can add, change, or remove properties without having to cancel one policy and purchase another. They insure properties from single-family rentals, up to 20-unit multifamily dwellings, vacation rentals, mobile homes, condos, and more. Trade catchy jingles for cash flow with insurance made for investors. Visit nreg.com slash bppod to request a proposal. N-R-E-I-G dot com slash B-P-P-O-D. You're trying to close on your next rental, so why is your insurance company dragging its feet? With long lead times and never-ending paper forms, it's no wonder it takes forever to finally get a policy. Modern investors deserve better. They deserve Steadily.com. At Steadily.com, you'll get fast, affordable landlord insurance available online 24-7 in just a few clicks. You can even get next-day coverage, which takes just minutes, by the way, to obtain. And you can do it all from your phone. Steadily was founded by landlords who created insurance products tailored to the unique needs of this industry. It's their sole focus, and that's why landlords nationwide consistently rate them 4.8 out of 5 stars. So whether you've got a single-family, short-term, or multifamily portfolio, Steadily.com can secure the best coverage at the best price to protect your properties. Discover how Steadily can save you both time and money on your rental property insurance. Visit Steadily.com for a commitment-free quote tailored to your needs today. Here's a little insider-only knowledge from my days on the force. Most break-ins actually happen in broad daylight. And if you're enjoying more time out and about, your home could be in danger. So what you're saying, David, is that we should block out the sun to reduce break-ins. I like it. Oh, you've been watching too much Interstellar again, Rob. <laughs> you can just use Simply Safe to protect your home 24-7. They were even named Best Home Security Systems of 2024 by U.S. News and World Report. Simply Safe's advanced sensors and cameras protect every room, window, and door in my home, keeping the little Abisolo safe no matter where I am. Plus, you know we're frugal, guys. That's why we love Simply Safe's super affordable 24-7 professional monitoring that costs less than a dollar a day. Now, I don't worry when I'm away. You can even test out Simply Safe risk-free with their 60-day trial. Protect your home today. Bigger Pockets listeners get a special 20% off any new Simply Safe system when you sign up for fast protect monitoring. Just visit simplysafe.com/pockets. Don't wait, that's simplysafe.com/pockets. Can you talk about a little bit for the listeners at home that are maybe struggling with scaling or the operation side? How can how can people getting started or really looking to scale their company, how can they take on the biggest challenge in their operations? You know, I think the first thing to do is not, you know, the first thing you got to do is see what's out there. You, you have to talk to people. You have to, you know, 
honestly, the, the Facebook groups, the, um, you know, the coaching that's out there, there are a lot of solutions out there. And they're, they're, I think the first place that you have to look, don't try to reinvent the wheel first. You can reinvent the wheel. I've, I've, I've had to do it and I've built solutions in, in areas that I didn't think made sense. And that's a lot of like what I do now. But I think the first thing that you want to do is start talking to people, start talking to people in the community. Um, that's something that's available now in the short-term rental, rental industry that wasn't. I mean, in 2014, there weren't a lot of people to talk to, period. There weren't a lot of other people in this industry to talk to as easily. There were a lot of people in the industry. It was very disparate. There wasn't a big sense of community. Now there's a huge community out there. So whatever your biggest operation issue is, first, try to find a problem from somebody else that you, a mentor, somebody you appreciate, uh, respect, somebody that you can, you know, a, a group or a forum that you can put that out there. Look for a solution that exists first. Yeah, great advice. David, you're also kind of the king here. I feel like you have so many teams and so many uh, points here, points of contact for so many aspects of your businesses. I'm curious on your side, when do you look to make that hire? Because I know that you're very good at staying lean too. So does every single hire hurt or does it come from a point of excitement to actually create a role that can sort of alleviate the load for the team? I think personally that hires are scarier than they are exciting because we have done well in the role that, that we are hiring for. Cause if we didn't, we wouldn't need to hire someone to do it just by very nature of being in a position that you can't keep up. You did a good job. And I think a lot of the reason that people do a good job is they're motivated for themselves. So all of us, when it's our own property, we take care of it really well. We're building our wealth. It's our reputation. Now think about like you drive your own car different than you drive a rental car. Every employee is in some sense driving a rental car. Now that doesn't mean they're all going to trash the car. When I drive rental cars, I'm very respectful of them. I take care of my, I treat it like it was my own, but I'm not naive enough to think everyone does that. So it's very difficult when you get to that point, trying to scale because most human beings aren't going to put the effort into it that you did. I was just saying something about this the other day with someone that we hired and they made a, they they had a decision to make. And instead of putting a little bit of effort into thinking what's the best choice, they just did the, the quickest thing they could. And they were kind of being defended by someone on the team. And I said, no, look, let me ask you something. If this person was trying to figure out what restaurant they wanted to go to eat at tonight, at minimum, they would have yelped and seen what the reviews are. It's okay to expect them to do that in our company too. They could have put that same effort into this decision. They just didn't want to. This isn't the right person to be in that position because we're not going to watch them every day and we're not going to know what decisions they're making. So there is an element of hiring that just makes your job more complicated. There's no way around that. It's a different skill set, but you got to deal with it. There is no way around the hiring debacle. If you want to scale, if you want to grow, you have to be able to do this. And uh, it doesn't benefit you to sit around and talk about like, oh, I don't want to grow because of all these reasons. Like if you want to grow, this is what you're dealing with. Jeff, I, I want to transition us into a little game here, but I want to give you a chance to respond to that whole thought about scaling in employees before we do. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think it's, you're spot on, I, you know, you're, you're, you're hiring for something that you just did. Um, it's hard to let go. It's hard, especially when you care as much as you do to expect other people um, to have that same level of care. And I think as the more you can align and something that I've done in, in all of my businesses is try to align your interests with your employees' interests. Now, a lot of the times it's really, it's easy to do in like a sales position, right? Like your alignment is the commission. Everybody's aligned by a commission. Um, what I used to do, you know, and, and what I've seen a lot of people do is 
you know, align your cleaning company um, by by determining extra bonuses based on you know how many five star cleaning reviews you get, or align your total compensation with your whole company. You know, there's a lot of people out there that do uh, you know equity for startups and things like that. But when, one thing that you can do is actually give out quarterly bonuses. Uh, which I, I've done in my company, I do in my company now, based on total growth. So one, like align your uh, your employees as much as you can with yourself and your business. And then the second point that, that was like a more nuanced thing in what you said, David, that, I, that really resonated with me was that you treat your own properties the best, right? And that's, for me, starting a property management company after 40 properties was not something I wanted to do, but I had already built out a property management company with a team for myself mm -hmm. that was operating my units the way I wanted my units to be operated. And so I wasn't building out a property management team to handle other people's properties. They were just coming in and I was like, well, I have this team already. This is a good deal. I should try to do this. And that those properties fit into my system in the same way. And so all of those procedures and processes were in place as though I was taking care of my own property. And I think that that was a really nice transition to get into property management. It wasn't something I was looking to do. It just happened, you know, because of, of what I had built already. Now, Jeff, I have recently purchased a literal buttload of short-term rentals. I don't know what a literal buttload is, but I thought that that would make Rob laugh. I think I've got like, <laughs> like, like probably 15 short-term rentals, maybe 17 by now, either just closed or coming down the pipe. And uh, for the first time ever, I'm having to work through the fact that it's not like purchasing a normal house where I go have a handyman go work out a punch list of an inspection report and I turn it over to the property manager and they get it listed. There's a lot of stuff you got to buy to get these things ready. And I am going to selfishly ask you to sort of teach me and the rest of us, what are some methods that you have used to get a short-term rental or short-term rental ready to be put on the market. We're going to call this game Method to the Madness, and we're going to focus on purchasing for short-term rentals. So you can share a method that you used, who this method could work for, and if it has resulted in madness to you. Rob, why don't you take question number one? Number one, what was an easy access marketplace, but not scalable avenue you use at first? Uh, an easy access marketplace, uh, probably literally Facebook Marketplace. Um, that, <laughs> yeah. that, that, I don't know if that just cause it's a marketplace, but it's easy to access. There's a lot of good stuff on there. And I definitely use that at the beginning, um, that and Craigslist to kind of furnish my first couple properties with, you know, most of the, the basic items. Okay. So who should use this and how, Oh, who should use it? So, uh, if you are setting up your first vacation rental property and you are, um, dipping your toe, you're not fully committed to this. You just want to try it out. I don't rec I don't know if I recommend that for everybody, but you know, sometimes that makes sense. You got an extra bedroom in your house. You are trying to rent out um, a, a small guest house. It's your first couple properties. You can use marketplace. You're not on a timeline. You can wait, you can wait, you can find the exact items that you that you want, and you have the time to drive around, pick up those items. Um, you own a truck, that helps. Yeah. Uh, so the that those are the types of people. Um, that I would recommend Facebook Marketplace for. You have a truck, maybe, or access to a truck or somebody with a truck, um, and you're kind of setting up one, two rooms for the first time, and you just want to see what it's like. Okay, so if, if, if you've done this several times, can you talk about a moment in which this became madness for you? Yes, so um, I remember trying to do this uh, on like the 
third property maybe. And I, my phone was just my text. I couldn't find any text message to anybody that I knew. It was just random numbers as far as, as I could scroll because I had so many feelers out for like a bed and a bench and a, and a mat and whatever I could think. And I had no idea who was texting me for what or what address any of these things were at. And I was like, I'm spending hours trying to find, you know, three couches right now. This doesn't make any sense. <laughs> if I had a dollar, Jeff, for every time that I, in my beginning of my Airbnb career, where my heart jumped when I was driving and saw an old raggedy piece of furniture, I was like, oh, that could go in my Airbnb. I'd have enough money to buy a house because literally every time I saw a dresser, I was like, I can paint that. Or if it was like a free couch. I mean, the very first couch I had in my Airbnb was literally like a pullout couch that was on Craigslist free. And wow, that one, uh, it was not, yeah, I, would, I wouldn't show photos of that couch. It was, it was a little dingy, but we made it through. I, uh, I, I'll tell you, I had some, I had some dingy first, my first couple units, uh, in addition to the Craigslist and other things, I literally would be driving on the road and see somebody moving out of a, out of an apartment or home. And I, I am guilty of picking up a couple items off the street and being like, mm, I could probably clean that and, and, you know, paint it and throw it in a unit. Um, so, you know, that is obviously not scalable because you can't spend all day driving around, but yes, I've, I've also taken things off the side of the road, um, and tried to fix them up. Uh, for everyone at at home watching on YouTube, I'm just we're gonna throw over some some B roll right here so you can see what my very first Airbnb looked like, and I, they don't look like this anymore. But just just so you know, it's a glow up story for everyone that ever gets into this business. Uh, David, how about you take number two? Question number two: What are some big box items that ended up being big flops? Big box items that ended up being big flops. Um, I would say I went with. I used to buy uh, IKEA sheets. That was and and um, and, and pillows and and stuff. Um, and they were not great. <laughs> I, I don't know how to say that um, any better. That was like my main um, thing I used to pick up from there. And they were really thin. They were kind of scratchy. Um, the guests didn't really like them. I would get I would get complaints um, about how the sheets weren't good. Uh, and I remember trying to upgrade and buying the more expensive sheets that they had at the time and then learning that those were actually way more expensive than what was out there uh, in other places. So big, big box, big flop. Okay. Who should use this method? Um, who should use the kind of Ikea method? I would say nobody. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I think, oh, I love it. I, I think, it. you know, I just, there's like... Look, I, I don't hate on Ikea. They really help in a lot of ways. And I think there are certain things that are there that, that are great. But, you know, a lot of their furniture items too, it's like you just learn that having an Ikea couch, you know, couch or coffee table, it, it, it's just not going to last most of the time, um, especially because you're in there and you're like, well, I'm here to save money. And then you realize that you're actually losing money in the long run because you're wasting a lot of time and you have to replace the items and all that kind of stuff down the road. But, um, you know, I, I think that Ikea furniture, unfortunately, the majority of it doesn't have a place in vacation rental units. And I don't think anybody should um, put it in their units. I believe Rob's famous line is buy nice, not thrice. Cause you don't want to buy. That's right. Time. David, you watch my YouTube videos. Wow. That is so sweet. Uh, Jeff, I do want to say, you have impacted my sleep, all right? The, since we've talked, all right? You have really changed 
the, the this I woke up like this and it's all because of you because you're the one that told me about Brooklyn and sheets I never really heard of that of them and so let me tell you we buy them now and this is not advertising I don't get anything nothing but they are the greatest sheets to ever touch my skin ever and I have come from the dark side of Ikea right I was an Ikea fan and now I cannot do it it's ruined sleeping everywhere for me i can only sleep in my bed now so thank you for that i guess it's a double thank you you're welcome and they're 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 fantastic i i uh, i feel the same way about them did we touch on the ikea cart story you you hit that jeff oh yeah yeah tell us about that oh yeah so so yeah that's kind of a scaling a scaling pain story also so i i remember getting to the point i took that ikea um sheets and etc story to uh to kind of the next level uh, I was setting up 16 uh, units at a time and it was like one big setup and I'll never forget because each of those units was like two, three bedrooms. So you're talking a lot of furniture and a lot of mattresses and a lot of everything else, linens, et cetera, that I needed all at once. And I had been in that, at that point, up to that point, you know, I was probably around 40, 50 properties. I had been running to Ikea uh, with my team to like pick up, pick up items and past the marketplace world into the Ikea world. And I'll never forget this one day where I was with my team. There were 16 of us. We were in Ikea. We had 48 shopping carts <laughs> worth of items to check out. And it it was crazy. The line went all the way around, like through the store, like towards, you know, towards like the entrance to where you pick everything up. And just the checkout alone took three hours of just like scanning and then the payment came up and I remember asking, Hey, like, this is like a decent amount of stuff. Um, you know, can I get a discount? And I'll never forget the woman just laughed and she was like, no way, <laughs> like no shot. Like this isn't even close to what you would need to get a discount on this stuff. And I was like, that's crazy. But that whole day was the worst. I mean, from my employees wanting to literally never talk to me again, because we picked up all this stuff we put it in this U-Haul, one of the two U-Haul, uh, one U-Haul and, a, and a, our van that we had. And the U-Haul, uh, my, my employee that was driving it ended up getting into an, like a fender bender. And then there was like all these insurance issues that happened afterwards. And then we got to the place and it was like eight something at night. And all of a sudden I'm like the sigh of relief. Oh, like this whole crazy day is gone. Like I've picked up all this Ikea stuff. Here I am. And then realizing that it was all in the U-Haul, we had to get it all out and return the U-Haul at some, and, and then we had to build it. And so it was like this, just the amount of like packaging and opening and, you know, the time building it and the time unloading it. It was one of the craziest 48 hours of this one trip to Ikea. Um, and I swore to myself after that and true to myself, never, never did it again. Oh man, I have done that so many times you know that scene in wolf of wall street where like jordan belfort's like selling the stocks he's like come on you could do it and he like sells them and everyone's like crowded around him and everyone's like claps after he's done i went to, i remember i went to ikea one time with my one of my first business partners i was like all right you take this cart you go here and i was like a robot just grabbing like fake plants and sheets and doing this and like literally it was just like the the speed at which i was doing this because i've mastered this pro this process so many times he's like man i just felt like i watched jordan belfort sell stocks and i was like i know man i'm sorry and so we also had like five 
And I, I think that was the moment for him when he realized that short-term rentals were not going to be easy. He was like, oh man, I thought we just furnished this. I was like, no, no, no. The furnishing is actually the fun part. It's the buying that's not fun. And then the dealing with the boxes. <laughs> I, you're a hundred percent right. I remember being with my team and we were in there and we're talking to each other like, Hey, did you grab the Ektorp? Oh, like where's the mom? And we were, I literally felt like we were speaking Swedish to each other because like everybody knew every piece of furniture that we would use by name. Um, and it was like I, this aha moment of this probably is not right. Ah, <laughs> uh, the mom, the, the, the very difficult to assemble dresser. Why is it so hard? <laughs> Uh, I that's the one piece of furniture. I'm like, if you're gonna buy something used on Craigslist, it's a mom dresser because you'll never get those five hours back. <laughs> uh, moving on here to question number three: Does online shopping have its drawbacks? What's the method here? Online shopping, it it can be good if done the right way. The problems with online shopping are one: a lot of people don't know what they're doing. So um, I think I think that there's a lot of little tips and tricks that, that an effective online shopper um, will know how to do. Whereas a somebody who's kind of just entering the space and is in this kind of analysis paralysis of, hey, there's 900 different mattresses out there. Hey, there's so many different kinds of sheets might not be able to understand. And then you end up not really buying from brands, you end up buying off-brand stuff that you don't really know what you're getting. And, you know, a lot of folks that I talk to and myself will go through things like, uh, I went through a big Wayfair phase where I was buying a lot of stuff from Wayfair and it was literally playing roulette. It was Wayfair roulette where I would order something. I wouldn't be sure what was actually going to show up. It could be really good quality. It could be really bad quality. Um, I remember ordering a couple nightstands one time that showed up and they were literally, they were like, maybe like eight inches tall. They were like for a dollhouse, you know? Like they looked big on the on the picture because they were zoomed in. And I was like, what a great price for nightstands. And then they ended up showing up. And you know, like I I, I think we actually put we actually put them next to the bed that we were that we were buying them for for like the couple guests because they were damaged. We were replacing them. I we put them there for a couple guests because we thought that they might find it funny too. Um but yeah, I mean you're <laughs> there are some perils, you know, not knowing the quality of what you're getting, playing roulette, not understanding shipping timelines and how those work and how to buy things that are in stock, not understanding what contract grade furniture is and commercial grade quality furniture, right? There's a lot of things that fall under online shopping. Whereas like if you were, you know, if you were buying through somebody like, like even host GPO, you know, my company, right? That, that is a different, it's online shopping, but it's very, very different. And it's geared towards uh, making that experience easier for people. Um, rather than like, you know, the other thing is like when you're checking out of, of like an Amazon or, a, or an Ikea or whatever, like thousands of clicks, thousands of clicks, you know, oh, I need a cheese grater. You're buying one cheese grater at a time. Like that is also a peril of online shopping that we, we try to solve. But, you know, you can do it wrong. You can spend a lot of time online shopping. Okay. I think actually you covered everything there, the method and the madness. I love that phrase, Wayfair roulette. That was hilarious. <laughs> Yeah. I also had my Ikea moment in addition to you guys. I was living with a, another cop and I was working in law enforcement and I bought the Ikea thing and they had these like tiny little tools that you're supposed to use. And it took me about three and a half hours to put it together. And in the middle of it, I realized I could have worked four hours of overtime and made like 
75 bucks an hour at double time or whatever it was. And I could have bought the nicest dresser ever and saved money. I'm never doing this again. So you guys are bringing up all the time. Ikea Mm -hmm. is like PTSD in Swedish or something. That's probably four letters. (laughs) (laughs) Ikea. That's really good. (laughs) All right. Next question here. Let's talk throw out rugs. When has this gone well? And when has this made you mad? Yeah. So I talk about this. Um, I, I've, I've had this conversation a lot of times, like when is it time to throw a rug out? Like when, when, how do you deal with rugs in your vacation rental units? Um, on the one hand, rugs are great and they actually, actually like my background and my family's background is actually in rugs. So like I've always, I'm always thinking about rugs for rooms, but, um, what a lot of people don't understand is if a guests make if a guest makes a rug dirty and it's in a high traffic area, they spill something on it, whatever it is, you can probably pay two hundred dollars, or at least that's how much it is out here, um, to have somebody come with a special vacuum and shampoo the rug and clean it. But that rug is never going to look as good as a brand new two hundred dollar rug. And so the thought here is, when what items are when do you really need to replace items in a vacation rental unit? How often? How often do you need to be throwing out your rugs? How often do you need to be, um, you know, replacing uh, linens? And so what what ends up happening is even if you buy a washable rug, uh, you will go through enough washes where it'll start to fray and you really have to be okay with understanding that like at a hotel or like at any other, you know, nicer accommodation where people are paying and expecting a, that level of service and quality when they show up, um, you need to make sure that you're replacing the items that are starting to get worn out in a regular and frequent enough basis, rugs especially, uh, because that it's usually the first thing people see when they walk into a room or like when they walk into an entryway. And if that doesn't give off this clean, pulled together, new uh, you know, vibe, that's going to reflect negatively and, and set the tone for the rest of the stay. I, you know, I haven't thought about this enough. As you're talking, I'm starting to get chills in my stomach. Like I've looked at the house. I've looked at the deal. I've looked at the numbers. I haven't thought about (laughs) furniture and how much I'm going to go through it. Rob's laughing. It's like, he's like, oh, I remember back when I was innocent and naive and I didn't think about what guests were doing (laughs) because I'm like, I got a lot of rugs in these houses. Some of them are these like, like faux bare skin, really thin rugs. I'm like, that's going to be completely ripped into pieces and trash. And they were all expensive when we picked them out. So I wish we had interviewed you before I had picked out the furniture. Um, Cause this is some good stuff. I mean, obviously like guests aren't going to treat it super well. What's, you know, before we move on to the next question, what's just a quick, like universal piece of advice that when you're picking out furniture or picking decor, picking out whatever you want to call this for a rental property, that a, a rule people can just live by that if you get this right overall, you'll be okay. I mean, I, I really like Rob's, um, you know, buy, buy it once. Price. Yeah. Buy nice. Buy, buy nice, not, not, not thrice. That's a, that's a really strong one. Um, I think the other, the other kind of game changer uh, rule is buy contract grade furniture. Um, really, really focus on contract grade furniture or just the idea of commercial grade everything, right? You want commercial grade in your house, your home. It's not, this this is, this is the concept that I think people just fail to grasp a lot of the time. And I did for my first hundred units, right? You really need to think nice. Doesn't just mean expensive. Nice means like right for what you're doing. You're creating a commercial space. People are coming and going. 
the way that somebody's gonna use that couch, they're gonna drive it like a rental couch and they're gonna sit in it, they're gonna open it, they're gonna close it. If you buy a pullout couch from you know, your normal uh, you know, place, how many times do you expect somebody like a friend or somebody who's coming to stay in your own home to stay in that couch, right? Maybe you open that thing two, three times a year. That's what it's built for. That applies across the board. Those vacation rental pullout couches get opened and closed every day at least a couple times a week, right? The cleaners open and close it a couple times. The guests will open and close it. They might open and close it multiple times during a day, right? So buy nice really means buy linens that are gonna go through enough washes. Buy, you know, uh, contract grade furniture that's gonna be able to not break and withstand people standing up and sitting down and there are specific types of furniture. Um, you know, this is a big thing that we talk about with host GPO too, is just like educating people on what those kinds of furniture are that you should be putting in your homes. So the, the one takeaway is treat your space like it's a commercial space and buy that property. Is there a quick answer to where you can shop to find commercial grade stuff or is it not that easy? Yeah. I mean, so, so host GPO, you know, our buying group is really based on focusing on, on only identifying companies that have, at least for high use items, contract grade furniture. If you're buying on a site like West Elm, um, you, you know, through host GPO or not, uh, you can sort by contract grade. It's a filter. Most people just don't know what it is. So again, online shopping can be good if you know how to do it. And filtering by contract grade, especially when you have that luxury and that ability is a great way to do that. Um, so again, you can do that. Uh, sometimes it's not generally available. So like linens is a good example of that. Like, especially if you're running dozens or, you know, 50 or hundred, uh, listings, linens can get a little bit challenging because commercial grade linens aren't available to the general public a lot of the time. So some, something like that, you would have to join a buying group, um, you know, to, to be able to access. Yeah. I think I also got some buyer or sorry, some contractor grade things from Wayfair in the past. That's typically when I go to Wayfair, it, it has to be contractor grade just because like you said, Wayfair roulette, right? You're not really sure what you're going to get. I've had some pretty good luck on there. I've purchased like several vanities and, and things that are actual like, I don't know, critical components to houses and stuff. So they've held out to, pretty well for me. To be fair, um, contract rate isn't like a, it's a great term, but it doesn't mean the same thing everywhere. Right. It's kind of like saying, um, you know, artisanal, <laughs> um, you know, that, that artisanal pizza or ice cream or whatever might not be the same in, in two different areas or two different places, uh, depending on where you are. So, um, yes, certain, certain people with actual contract rate designations that do the testing on those products, like those products are game changers. Well, I, for one, am a big fan of artisanal couches, my favorite in the game. Uh, we can end here. We can end. We got one more question here. Sure. Um, should you balk at buying in bulk? Absolutely not. Um, buying in bulk uh, doesn't necessarily mean buying hundreds of everything. Um, it means buying enough that you can qualify for some sort of discount pricing. And there's tons of benefits. One, you can access additional discounts uh, that you're not going to be able to get otherwise. And two, um, you'll be able to keep an inventory in your home that will prevent you from doing the worst thing you can do in vacation rentals um, or really in your life, which is panic buying. So that really goes to um, your you know, out at a store, uh, because you had a guest checking in and you're missing a pillowcase. So you go to the closest store to buy two pillowcases. All of a sudden you're paying double for those pillowcases or those sheets or those towels. They're not going to match what you had the first time. You're going to have to, um, you know, exchange them out if you want to create like a unified experience. And, 
uh, you're going to pay through the nose for them. And you know, that's the worst, worst thing you can do. Whereas if you had them in inventory, you had them in storage, you just pull a new one out. Keeping a, a closet full of replacement items and buying in bulk in that way is a real, real trick to, you know, operating a successful, profitable business. Well, that is uh, the, the cube master, as I like to call him, Mark Cuban. He talks about that. And he's like, whatever I, he's like, he always buys like the big version of stuff, right? Because he's like, I'm going to need to buy toothpaste eventually. So I just buy 1,000 of them. No, I'm just kidding. I don't, he didn't say that exactly. But maybe he, he does. Said, I don't know. He said, he said a lot of stuff like that. His whole thing is like, you know, why would you buy one toothpaste um, when you can buy, you know, a, a pack of five for like the cost of one and a half? You know, that's just, that's just, you're going to use the toothpaste. You're going to use the sheets. Um, in your listing. So you might as well, you know, you're, you're pretty much overpaying four times on your, on your toothpaste. If you really think about it that way, um, you don't have to buy a hundred toothpaste because you might not, you know, hopefully you get through all of them, but you might not. Um, it's just, you know, you don't want to buy one. Do you just keep those in the owner's closet and then you just keep restocking from that same place? Yeah. Usually we'll have, um, you know, at least a handful of items in the owner closet. Uh, and then we have, you know, once we got to 50, plus units, we started having like warehouses where we would actually hold. And a lot of, you know, like our kind of members at host GPO, they all, everybody has their own different way of doing it. And warehousing is a really nice option when you can get there. Yeah. We'll say, man, I, I bought like 50, I, th- I got bulk sheets from a, uh, I don't remember where, but it was oh, standard textile. Yeah. And it was kind of expensive because, you know, I didn't need like 20 pairs of sheets or whatever, but it is super relaxing to ordering sheets and reordering sheets. David, you're going to learn this 15 times over here in your portfolio. It's very inconvenient when your cleaner's like, will you order sheets? And you're like, oh man, okay, are they staying now? They need to order them now. So just having like a lot ready to go, it actually is really quite uh, quite a relief to not have to worry about sheets for like the next year or two. Yeah. I mean, standard textile is a great, is a great example of that. There's so many benefits that like, you just don't know if you don't know, um, you know, like a, your cleaner telling you, Hey, we need to replace the sheet. And you're like, what size is it? And nobody can figure it out. But if you look on the inside, there's like a color coordinated thread. There's a color coded thread that says like green. And that means twin. So they go and they grab a green inside, you know, those are commercial sheets. Those are hospitality sheets. And like, you know, Rob, you've had a positive experience buying through, through host GPO, that kind of stuff. I mean, that's what we made it for. We made it to streamline your ordering process. Yeah. At, at scale, you kind of have to do it. So yeah. This has been fantastic. Thank you very much, Jeff, for sharing such helpful details here. I'm going to move us on to the last segment of our show. It is the world famous Famous Four. In this segment of the show, we ask every guest the same four questions every time. And I will start with the first one. Question number one, what is your favorite real estate book? Which is hilarious because I think you said earlier you've never read one. So I'm curious how you're going to answer this. You know, I, you know, I don't know if I've... Um... I've read like real estate textbooks in classes, you know, commercial real estate, et cetera, that kind of stuff. But um, I've heard great things about the Burr Bible. I'll throw that out. Um, There are a lot of folks um, who have been writing really, really great short-term rental, uh, you know, guides. Uh, And like I mentioned at the beginning of this podcast, I had a great mentor who I was lucky enough to walk me through a lot of this stuff. But back then, most of these books weren't around. Um, so, you know, I think that, that, you know, I've heard great things about, about the Burr book. I've heard great things about, um, and I have, uh, Avery Carl's book on my shelf that I've been meaning to get to. Um, so there, there are a lot of really great, uh, resources out there specifically for short-term rental, uh, companies. So I, I, I would throw that out there. Okay. Awesome. Well, question number two, curveball number two, if you will, what is your favorite business book? My favorite business book, um, 
there's two. The one that comes to mind right now is probably Getting the Yes, um, which I really think is a great, great book on how to think about negotiations. Um, it totally reshaped how I approach conversations with people. Um, and I think that for anybody that has to, everything is kind of a negotiation when you think about it at the end of the day, every deal you're going to sign, every, you know, every vendor you work with. So I think that's a really good one. Uh, if you haven't read it, you should. When you are not out there creating rental arbitrage, uh, empires, uh, what are some of your favorite hobbies? Um, hobbies. So I play music actually. So I'm a, uh, I'm a saxophone player. Uh, so I like to play, um, shows whenever I can and, and just kind of jam out with friends. Um, that and travel, um, uh, probably my two favorites. All right. In your opinion, what sets apart successful investors from those who give up, fail, or never get started? I think a successful investor is someone who is willingly ready to pivot whenever that needs to happen. So I think any anybody who has a strict mindset and is rigid on this is what I'm going to do and is unwilling to actually look at the data in front of them or look at what the deal is in front of them and pivot what they were hoping for um, is destined for failure. And I think that somebody who is flexible and uh, treats each deal, each deal and each property like a snowflake uh, um, is as more likely to succeed. Awesome. Lastly, Jeff, tell us where people can find out more about you. Yeah. So um, you can check out hostgpo.com. Um, that's our buying group for vacation rental companies. Uh, there's a bio about me on there. Uh, if you sign up, um, you'll be able to chat with us, uh, chat with me, uh, and learn more about kind of my experience and um, you know how we got to starting Host GPO. Awesome. David, what about you, man? I'm at Green 24 all over social media. Please, if you have me reach out to you and ask you for your money or crypto or some amazing deal, that's not me. I will never reach out to you as a stranger with an opportunity like that. Uh, so be careful because I get new accounts every freaking week trying to work on getting the check mark so that doesn't happen. But that's hard in case no one's ever heard. It's uh, There's so many scammers out there, though. We got to do something about it. And then my YouTube channel is David Green Real Estate. Robbie, how about you? Hey, by the way, I see your YouTube channel subscribe. You're creeping up there, man. You're doing a lot of lives. Maybe you can have me on one day. I'm still waiting for you to follow me back on Instagram, but it's all good, man. You can find me on Instagram at Rob Built, uh, on YouTube at Rob Built. And uh, on TikTok at Rob Bilto. I think I did follow you back. Didn't you actually ask me for like 10 grand or something? I wired it to you not that long ago. Oh, no. You fell for the one thing that we tell people not to fall for all the time. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Jeff, thank you very much for coming on here. Really appreciate it. This was some great information. And uh, selfishly, I think it'll help for me because I'm already thinking about, oh, boy, I need to figure out how to get commercial grade furniture, linen sheets, towels, all that jazz. So this came at a very opportune time. I'm hoping to put a couple properties under contract while I'm out here in Scottsdale. So that might be the first place that I can put this to use. Really appreciate you. And uh, thank you for being here. Hopefully we can have you back again. Of course. My pleasure. This is David Green for Rob. By nice, not thrice. Abasolo signing up. Braving the real estate investing journey on your own can be daunting. Doubts tend to creep up and stifle your ambition. Is this actually a good deal? Did you run the numbers right? What if you can't find a tenant? Can you even afford this place? What if you lose your job? Whatever you're going through, we've all been there. And guess what? 
The best way to overcome your doubts and hesitations is with a healthy dose of knowledge, networking, and accountability. And that's just what you'll find in our newly released 2024 Summer Boot Camps. After these eight action-packed weeks of step-by-step guidance from expert investors, weekly video modules, live Q&As, interactive assignments, and new friends to keep you accountable, you'll be ready to tackle your first or next deal with full confidence and expertise. Choose from the small multifamily, short-term rental, or rookie boot camps and register by April 12th for the lowest prices. Head on over to biggerpockets.com slash enrollme today. That's biggerpockets.com slash enrollme. The content of this podcast is for informational purposes only. Past performance is not indicative of future results, and all hosts and participant opinions are their own. Investment in any asset, real estate included, involves risk. Use your best judgment and consult with qualified advisors before investing. Only risk capital you can afford to lose. BiggerPockets LLC disclaims all liability for direct, indirect, consequential, or other damages arising from reliance upon information presented in this podcast.